when you can't get stuff, you become very inefficient. You have all kinds of people getting tied up trying to chase down all kinds of stuff and, and, and things on hold and things can't move forward and truck drivers are sitting waiting and uh, your containers are sitting and waiting and ships are at anchor not being able to unload. So you've got this whole gummed up economy that makes everything really hard to deal with and very inefficient. Welcome to the Construction Disruption Podcast, where we uncover the future of building and remodeling. Join us as we explore an industry that is always evolving with new products, practices, designs, and technologies. Each episode of Construction Disruption meets with forward thinkers from the design and construction industry, as well as others, perhaps outsiders sometime, to share their unique pers- uh, insights and perspectives as well. Construction Disruption is created and sponsored by Isaiah Industries, a manufacturer of specialty metal roofing systems and other building materials. I'm Todd Miller, president of the company. Our co-host is sales manager Seth Heckman. Creative director Ryan Bell is our behind-the-scenes producer today. So, um, Seth, great to be here today. I'm looking forward to our guest today. I'm sure you are as well. Yeah, absolutely. Really looking forward to it. Very good. Well, you know, one of the things I think about is if you're really going to be disruptive and a game changer in the construction industry, I really think you have to understand the bigger picture. Um, you know, I don't care if it's someone building a skyscraping office building in Chicago or a tiny house out in the middle of a desert outside of Albuquerque. For the person who's doing the construction, that project regardless, is probably a very significant investment for them. Um, So if someone's going to introduce some disruptive technology, some product or practice that is going to influence or even change, you know, how someone would build that skyscraper or that tiny home, I really think that it's important to understand the economies um, that are going to motivate and drive all of the stakeholders from all of that, from the property owner to the designer, um, and even including the myriad of contractors who will probably be involved as well. Um, And so that's exactly what we want to dive into with our special guest today. Uh, This is a gentleman who I have really enjoyed following for a couple of years um, to try to capture his um, incredible insight into economic trends and forecasts. Um, He never ceases really to amaze me uh, with his ability to I don't know where he comes up with everything, but to to pull out and to dig into numbers and statistics and really pull good um, conclusions in many times, or at least things that really make me think, um, and even sometimes to develop a few prognostications from them. That's a prognostication. That's, that's a good one. There that's a go. word for us. Okay. So um, that said, our guest today is none other than Mr. Wolf Richter. Um, Wolf has a great website at wolfstreet.com where he digs into the stories behind business, finance, and money. Um, as part of that, once you're at his website, you can sign up for his free e-newsletter, um, which I'm not even sure if it's exactly two or three types a day, but but several times a day, this drops some incredible uh, insight into uh, my inbox, and I always uh, look forward to uh, reading his e-newsletter. So, Wolf, 
Um, it's a real pleasure to have you today as a guest on Construction Disruption. Thank you, Todd. Uh, that, that was an awesome introduction. <laughs> uh, thank you for having me on your podcast. It, it, we've been in contact for a long time, so this is, this is a, a nice moment to be here and, and be chatting with you all. Well, we're looking forward to the conversation, that's for sure. So thank you. So, um, you know, I have followed your website for a couple of years, and um, I believe so much in the great information that you provide that we actually uh, became a sponsor of yours uh, a while back. But um, one of the things I do want to say about Wolf once you visit his website um, is that he creates these amazing graphs and charts that are just always fascinating to look at and to understand um, the amount of inference and information that comes through those graphs and charts uh, to help understand, you know, whatever that subject is, what's really going on and what the history is. But um, Wolf, I'm curious, would, would you mind sharing with our listeners and viewers a little bit about yourself? Love to hear about um, your history, um, your career, uh, where your fascination with all of these numbers and graphs and, and economics came from. And um, I, honestly, I, I, heck, I, I'd also really like to hear how one goes about getting a cool name like Wolf. So that would be neat, too. <laughs> yeah, so uh, the first thing I think I need to explain is that I'm, I'm not an economist. So I'm not trained in as, an, as an economist. I'm not one. Uh, I've uh, cut my teeth in business. I have uh, way back in the day, I got an MBA in finance from the University of Texas at Austin. And um, I then worked in the car business for a decade. And, and then I worked uh, on uh, in, in private equity and on, in the East Coast. Uh, and, and I spent a lot of time traveling around the world. So there's a, a period in my middle years that uh, were supposed to be the you know, the highest income years of my life, I, I, I decided I've had it. And, and so I went off and, and I traveled around the world for three years without coming home. And, and that was an incredible experience during which I also met my wife and, and uh, gave me a whole different uh, outlook on, on, uh, on economics uh, in, in general, because you see it in a different point of view. And, and uh, then eventually I went during the financial crisis. I, uh, I, I got so upset and angry with the things that were going on. Uh, uh, and my wife told me to, to start a website because she got really sick and tired of listening to me ranting and raving. And, 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 and eventually I did. And, and so that's the product now. It's, it's, a, it's my full-time gig. Uh, I don't do anything else. I concentrate on it hundred uh, percent. It's seven days a week. And, and uh, as Todd, as he said, um, Two articles a day, usually uh, most days. Sometimes just one, and and uh, and I'm loving it. You know, this is the this is the best job I've ever had, and and um, it's 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 an incredibly uh, a fun job to have and, and to participate uh, in in the discussion of all these big issues that we're now facing. Yeah, well, there certainly are those, that's for sure. And I have to say, when, when my wife gets tired of hearing me, she just tells me to go away. But um, so that's great. She encouraged you to do something productive and, and something that really is bringing great information to folks. Well, kind of jumping into things a little bit, you know, one of the things that you write a lot about is commercial real estate. And um, COVID in particular, and the pandemic has given you um, a lot to write about on this topic. 
Um, just kind of an overview. What what are the challenges and see and changes you're seeing in commercial real estate, um, including you know something I've seen you write about um, is the redevelopment of mall and office properties into other types of of projects. Yeah. So uh, commercial real estate uh, was really. Uh, shuffled around during the pandemic. And there were already some trends in place uh, before that got vastly uh, uh, fueled by by the pandemic, by the shifts in the pandemic. So we've had a red hot industrial sector. So that's warehouses, fulfillment centers, and and those kinds of things. That's been red hot. Uh, It was red hot before the pandemic. It has just gotten redder and hotter. And uh, because of the uh, yeah, the, the growth of e-commerce. Uh, this is now a particular issue with supply chain challenges we're having. So you, you find a lot of this uh, industrial real estate in Southern California uh, linked to the ports of LA and, and Long Beach. So where the containers are coming off, the ships that have to be taken to a warehouse and at the warehouse, they, they unload the containers and distribute the, the goods to different trucks. And uh, so if you don't have enough warehouses, uh, you can't process the containers. And, and so everything starts backing up and, and then trucks are waiting and containers are waiting and ships are waiting and, and the whole thing gets gummed up. So uh, industrial uh, commercial real estate, so warehouses, that kind of thing, uh, continues to be in, in huge demand. And uh, we see that all around. And then there were, uh, you know, the brick and mortar retailers, as I call them. And, and that started to go downhill uh, with e-commerce 20 years ago. And, and at first it wasn't really visible. Uh, but then in 2017, 2018, we had some major retailers go bankrupt. Uh, we've had a lot of smaller retailers go bankrupt. We had a, a large number of regional department stores go bankrupt. Uh, and so suddenly we had uh, malls that were uh, partially empty, that had anchor stores with nothing in it. And and so the retails before the pandemic, yeah, this was, this has been going on before the pandemic. Uh, so commercial real estate in, in the retail space has been troubled for a long time. And, and it's gotten really hit hard during the pandemic. A number of malls uh, went back to their lenders and um, even some of the biggest mall landlords uh, uh, like Simon Properties has sent some malls back to the lenders, you know, the commercial real estate jingle mail. Uh, so they're, they're keeping what's functional and they're they're disposing of the malls that, that are uh, not that great. Now, there are uh, mall properties that, that can be converted into something else. You have to probably uh, bulldoze the whole thing and you just, yeah, mall has a lot of real estate, and uh, so if it's in the right location, it has parking lots. You know, has big. It's just a huge amount of real estate. So if you want to do something with it, you can. If if the property is in an expensive location, we've got a big mall in San Francisco here, uh, Stonestown, uh, that is being redeveloped. It's going to have many thousands of housing units on it. There's going to be some retail and there's a movie theater and a grocery store, that kind of thing. Um, but the, you know, the, the parking lot, uh, the, the huge parking lot and, and uh, some of the big retail shops are going to be just bulldozed and, and turned into something else. This works in a very expensive environment like San Francisco. Uh, if, if the mall is out in the country somewhere where real estate is not very expensive, uh, 
you know, that, that, that's a different question. So a developer has to look at that. So that's the retail space. Now we've had the office space. And the office space in San Francisco, uh, that's an example, but there are other cities, and we've got we're in a few of those now, uh, has been red hot until shortly before the pandemic. And uh, incredibly tight office market, and companies were uh, jumping on on every uh, available office space that could get in order to to grab something for future use that they could grow into. They hadn't, you know, they didn't have any people to stick in these offices, but they wanted the space for future use. Uh, and uh, the, yeah, office uh, per square footage rates were were among the highest in the nation, just right around, just a little bit below where Manhattan is. And it was just a, a ridiculous uh, fight for office space that distorted a lot of things. Then came the pandemic and working from home. And now over a quarter off the office space in San Francisco is available for lease. It's on the market. Yeah, so this is one of the biggest office gluts in the country now. Within a very short period of time, this happened. I mean, it just from from red hot and over exaggerated and a bubble type environment to one of the worst office markets in the country. Uh, Houston is worse. Houston has been in terrible shape ever since the oil bust of 2014, 2015. And uh, then came working from home. So Houston is, is over 30% in terms of uh, office space on the market. Um, other cities are uh, less hard hit, but also hard hit. You know, they're in the teens with their uh, vacant office space. And, and so now the question that faces the office sector is, what are we going to do? Is this going to change? You know, are, are companies are suddenly going to, to, to need this office space? And what are we going to do with the office space that they don't need? And, and this is being discussed a lot in San Francisco. San Francisco is not a big city. And, and so to have this debt downtown there uh, that used to be very vibrant, you know, you, you have to do something. The retailers are going out of business. You know, the, the restaurants are going out of business. The bars and the hair salons and all these businesses that cater to office workers, uh, they, they have trouble surviving. You know, we have Walgreens stores closed and Target stores closed and other retailers are closing because, you know, the normal traffic that you get in, a, in an office uh uh, in an urban office center, you, you don't get anymore. And yeah, you know, San Francisco office workers will eventually go back to the office in larger numbers. I mean, that is clear. But right now, we're still down by like uh, 80%, roughly from 75, 80% from where it was. So even if we go back to 50%, uh, we're still down 50%. And uh, so, yeah, this is a question. Uh, that in San Francisco will take many, many years to resolve. In other cities, it might not take as long. Um, and then we'll have to deal with these office buildings that have to be used for something else. And, and we can talk about the redevelopment there. And uh, the other part of real estate that's, do, that's still doing pretty well, despite the pandemic, but it's looking at some uh, some some problems, is a multifamily in, in urban centers. Uh, apartment rents in San Francisco, for example, are still down 25% from their peak in, in July. In other cities that have come up, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a real shift in, in, in rents uh, uh, around the country. So we have some cities with rental spikes of 20% and other cities like San Francisco rents are down. And uh, single family housing, you know, that's a different kind of uh, rental property. Uh, that is done extremely well. So, um, yeah, 
when you look at commercial real estate, you see all these different things, and they're not they're not moving in the same you know, on parallel on the same track. You know, they're they have diverged diverged years ago, and now the divergence got even worse. And and some of the things that we can't build enough warehouses, and and uh, we don't have enough housing in some areas, and too much in others, and and then we have all this office space that we don't know what to do with, and and we've got uh, mall retailers and other retailers. Uh, that are more and more being supplanted by e-commerce. And uh, so yeah, that's what commercial real estate, that's kind of the summary of commercial real estate. And, and um, uh, there's huge opportunities uh, and huge problems. And they're not in the same, necessarily in the same spot. So are we starting to see a lot of um, loan defaults occurring on some of these properties or were some of these not leveraged or? Yeah. So in the retail space, we've, we've seen, and I, I didn't mention the hotel space. Uh, that's also an interesting thing, but that is recovering. Yeah. But in the retail space, uh, we have seen numerous uh, defaults of malls and, and I mean a whole bunch. And the biggest mall landlords have, have done that. You know, they own these these malls and separate legal entities. So when they default, it's only that legal entity that gets, uh, yeah, so assignment properties can easily unload a mall by just letting the lenders take it. And they have done that. They have done that on a whole bunch of malls. Brookfield has done it. All the mall landlords are, are shedding their malls. So now the lender gets the mall and the mall's still functioning most in, in these cases. These are not zombie malls, right? These are functioning malls. And so the lender has uh, this mall and they're going to sell it. And eventually, and and so they're going to have to take the loss, cut the price, and take the loss, and sell it to a to somebody else, you know. And and so that may be a landlord that's trying to make a go of this mall uh, as a retail uh, space, or it may be a developer that's buying it. And um, uh, you know, and then when the developer buys a mall like that, they have a much lower cost basis, and they can they can at that point get rid of all the tenants and, and uh, plow them all down if it's in a good location and, and build something new. If the mall is in, in not a good location for residential use, for example, uh, it'll just sit, it'll become a zombie mall. So there, uh, there are lots of these zombie malls out there. You can see the videos on YouTube. I mean, there's no use for them. It's just land. And, and um, it'll take many years before somebody uh, decides to do something with them. And uh, you know, a lot of these malls are backing uh, loans that have been rolled into commercial mortgage-backed securities. Uh, so we, we follow those, and uh, there have been uh, uh, some, some a lot of defaults uh, that were uh, caught by those commercial mortgage-backed securities. Uh, the, the interesting thing about these uh, securities is that they're structured in such a way that the, the lower uh, uh, layers or lower tiers uh, take the loss, the first loss, so there's an equity tranche and then there's a there's a chunk bond, a chunk rated tranches and they take the, the first losses. So if you've invested in the double A rated tranche, yeah, there's a good chance you, you don't have to take a big loss. But we've seen triple A uh, tranches get cut to, to D for default and they're now in foreclosure, you know, within a year. I mean, that's how fast it went. I mean, these uh, AAA-rated uh, securities are uh, now in default. And uh, ratings agencies were completely, uh, once again, caught by surprise with, with how fast the deterioration went. And and uh, so th this 
this whole thing, it takes a while, but once the, the mall defaults, gets foreclosed on, then there can be a new beginning from a real estate point of view. Then the developer can come in and say, look, I can buy the mall for next to nothing for the land value and I can build uh, mixed use or residential on there. And, um, and if that works out, then that's a good opportunity. And if not, you have, you have dead real estate sitting there for many, many years. Yeah. Uh, and that goes back to the point you said earlier in that that summary. It all comes down to the real estate value in that given market because the zombie yeah. mall describes a mall that we have nearby here us here to us where yeah we're in a really a relatively cheap market and there's been better uh, better land better use buildings to for viable opportunities that may have come for that mall and it just hasn't made them it made sense. Um, would love to hear your, you know you're describing that e-commerce evolution and how that has affected you know small mid-sized retailers obviously they've gone out of business and it's all been eaten up and and consolidated in these huge behemoth uh, corporations i would love to hear your perspective on what that means for the economy as a whole you know long term um you know i've been envious of some of their power and weight that they can throw around when i'm reading stories about the supply chain issues and how walmart can charter their own entire barge to get 1500 containers out of china where we're waiting on one or two to get out and just waiting in line ourselves and what that means but yeah what what's your thought on that is that good or is that greater risk, potentially greater reward long-term? What does that mean? Well, this is one of those changes in the economy that you can't stop and you mm -hmm. can't avoid. It's like the the sun rising. You know, you can't, it's going to happen. And uh, so uh, it doesn't really matter whether I think it's good or bad for me personally. You know, but it's going to happen. You know, and, and sure, there's a retailer that goes out of business that I used to rely on. It's now gone. You know, <laughs> and and so it has that kind of uh, local impact. But uh, or we have to keep in mind all the large retailers, so Walmart, Macy's, uh, you know, the big department stores, they all have a huge presence in e-commerce. And uh, so e-commerce is not something that only Amazon does. Everybody does it. And uh, in many of these retailers, the brick and mortar business has been shrinking for, for, for years, you know, and the e-commerce business has been doing very well. So what does that mean? It means they're having to invest in warehouses. They're having to invest in, in delivery systems. They're having to invest in all the brick and mortar infrastructure that e-commerce requires. So that's good for the economy. So you have that investment going on. Anytime you have a big change, you know, there's investment going on. And that's good. There's different kinds of jobs, retail jobs are going away, but, uh, you know, the e-commerce jobs are growing and are growing in very large numbers. And that anything from drivers and warehouse workers and all those people, but also robotics, programmers, high-tech jobs. Uh, I mean, uh, Macy's had a, a tech center here in San Francisco with, with, with uh, uh, hundreds of employees. All they were doing is Macy's.com. You know, they were doing the tech work on it. And if they closed it down, yeah, they moved it back to the East Coast. But uh, it, was, it was one of those, uh, you know, uh, opportunities in, for tech uh, to get involved in, in retail. And that's what's happening. So overall, I think the, the, the move is good. Uh, for people like me who hate to go shopping, it's great. You know, I, I mean, e-commerce, best thing that ever happened to me personally. Um, I don't have to waste my time chasing down a pair of jeans anymore. You know, it's just, uh, it's, it's just so easy now. Um, 
I, I don't I, any change like that is going to have some winners and losers. Um, I like to see these malls get redeveloped in into other uh, you know productive properties. Uh, I hate to see urban blight, uh, and, and that happens with retail. You know, you have a store that closes. You have lots of stores that glo- close, and and there's so in San Francisco we have a pandemic of that. Had it before, before the pandemic, and we had so many closed stores that uh, the city decided to impose a vacant store tax so that uh, developers would do something with these stores. That just brought them up and let them sit there. So we have these neighborhood stores that are closed. We have these big uh, uh, commercial strips with store after store closed. Yeah. So they need to convert them to restaurants and to nail salons and to other things and, and uh, not uh, you know, selling goods. And, and yeah, so this is a this is an issue that's been plaguing New York City, Manhattan, the same thing. I mean, they they have these fabulous shopping avenues, and store after store is closed. Yeah, you know, this is this is bad for tourism. It's bad for for everything. But you can't make a go. And so, you know, it, this this is an issue. What do you do with these smaller retail stores? A mall you can bulldoze, you know. But uh, what do you do with these smaller retail stores? And the restaurants, okay. We have 20 restaurants on the street and six nail salons and two barbers. And, <laughs> you know, so it is, it's tough, you know. Um, there, yeah, there is another example here in San Francisco, and you're, you're talking about expensive property, you know, so this is very expensive. This is a multi billion dollar uh, construction project that started five years ago uh, in just south of Market, just right near the Salesforce Tower, which is our tallest town in San Francisco. And um, uh, Oceanwide in China, Chinese property developer uh, built that. They built another, started building that, and they did another one in, in Los Angeles. And they've got uh, an unstarted project in Manhattan. And and uh, that project ran into trouble. It's supposed to be two towers, two huge towers. And it's it's a, I posted a photo of it on my site. I went down there and took one. I mean, it's gigantic. It's just an eyesore. It's been there for five years. It's now defaulted, so the, uh, the the creditors are claiming it. It will take. It will go through bankruptcy. You know, in the United States, it, it will take many years to resolve this. So we have this very expensive piece of land in the middle of commercial San Francisco that won't. That that's already been a construction site for five years. It's now at grade level. I mean, they have put in the foundation finally, and it's a grade level. That's all left out, and you see these these metals structural elements come out of the ground you know they're huge and 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 that's it and and it'll be yeah another 10 years or 15 years maybe or longer before something happens to that property before it's finished you know before it's a nice looking building or complex of buildings and and that's the real danger too when you when you talk about a whole segment of real and so this was a mixed user it was a condos hotel and and an office space. So the office space has become commercially unviable. Uh, the hotel, uh, Astor, uh, I mean, I don't know how many hotels we need in, in San Francisco at this point, so maybe, maybe not. And the condos might be viable, but, you know, we've got a lot of condos on the market in San Francisco. So, um, you know, it, this, is, this is one of those issues that, uh, you know, what do you do with it? And somebody will have to come in and either finish it or, or uh, or change plans and and this is a very expensive property. I mean, it's just 
one of the most expensive locations in the United States. And, uh, and still we're having trouble getting this project done. <laughs> so as I think about people out there, our listeners and viewers who may be in construction, it seems like, you know, there is this opportunity out there for them to get involved with redevelopment um, of these spaces, uh, repurposing, retrofit, um, office build-outs and, and modifications and things. Um, how long do you think that process is going to take before it evens out? I mean, is this something worthy of someone pursuing as a business um, or is it going to be more short lived than that? And you know, I guess the other thing I think about in terms of this is, you know, someplace all of this has to start with a, with a visioning process of, you know, what these prop uh, properties could be used for instead. Yeah. And so when, when, when a developer comes in to redevelop a property like that, the question is, so if I'm the developer, the question for me would be, would it be cheaper to start with bare land or would it be sure. cheaper to use the structure that's there and modify it? And if it's not cheaper to modify the structure, if it's just cheaper to, to start with bare land, it's not going to happen. The building is going to get boarded up and, until somebody tears it down. And that that is standard procedure. I mean, that's, that's kind of the normal thing when you have a nondescript office building that's old and that nobody wants anymore, you know, and you can't convert it, it's going to get torn down. And then a developer buys the, the bare land and starts from scratch. And uh, so that's kind of the norm. But uh, then there are opportunities, and especially with, with, with unique buildings that we've seen that with historic buildings that's been done for a long time, like at the cannery here in Fisherman's Wharf and many historic buildings on the East Coast. And, and they make beautiful condo buildings or hotels or whatever, you know, so and with, uh, yeah, in Manhattan with, uh, with the lofts that they've used, uh, you know, they've used warehouses and light industrial properties from the 1800s to make these beautiful lofts out of. And, uh, uh, so that's been done for a long time. And these are high end properties. Uh, I went to Tulsa where I used to live. Yeah. And I went to Tulsa, spent a couple of nights, uh, uh, last week at a hotel downtown that used to be city hall and, uh, 10 story, uh, concrete building, nondescript concrete building. Uh, I'm sure the designer won some awards for it back then, but today this looks like a nondescript office building made out of concrete and in stores roughly. Um, uh, and when you walk into the lobby, you know, it's still like, it looks like an, like an office building and uh, it's been converted to the, to a hotel, the A-loft as it's called. So there's sort of loft uh, uh, like hotel rooms. And it's well done. You know, they left some of the historic touches, like the, they have mail shoots by the elevators where, where people used to, the, the office workers used to stick the mail and it would drop down into the basket at the, at the bottom of the post office, pick them up. And they, they're cute. Yeah. I mean, nobody even knows any more what a mail shoot is. <laughs> and, and, uh, yeah. So, uh, and it's, so this was pretty successful. It's a hotel now. And, and, um, so that's a conversion. And when you look at it, you know, the, there's a lot of things that need to be done differently. So there's a, a long, narrow building. So that's good for residential. Because you have a core with the elevators and some utilities. And then you have the units on the outside and they all have windows. You know, if you have a round or square office building where the inner units don't have any windows, then it gets very difficult to convert, you know, and that's that, that's a case where an office building is really not good for anything other than an office building because 
in residential, you know, you want to have windows, you want to be able to get daylight. And so if it's a long, narrow building, that's perfect for that. And that's what this building was. So every room had, had nice amounts of windows. Um, but you, there's plumbing issues. So you have to put in the plumbing, you know, you have to divide uh, the, the building differently, the floor plants differently. Uh, it's a concrete building. So it's, it's, it's not easy to, to change structural elements around. Uh, there's lots of expenses involved doing that. Every room had to have its own bathroom. You had, before when there was office, they had bathrooms down the hall somewhere, you know, and so you had to put the plumbing in, you had to put the electrical in and, and these kinds of things and, and air conditioning for, for each room. And, and uh, so I don't know how much money they spent, but uh, the building was probably very cheap. Tulsa has been through a, a depression after the oil bust of yeah. uh, the 1980s. And uh, when I was living there, it lost 15% of its, its employment over a, a span of a decade. And uh, the, the major oil companies that used to be headquartered there, they moved to Houston and never came back. So this was when oil bounced back, it also didn't bounce back. And so properties were very cheap there. And uh, you could pick up a lot of stuff for next to nothing. And, and uh, so it probably made sense uh, to the developer to, to put in a hotel. and. And uh, it, it seems to have worked out. Um, you know, that's generally how it happens. There, there are modern office buildings in, in Tulsa as well. And, and so um, when, when there's a, an oversupply of office space, companies will upgrade. So they will leave their old digs and move to new digs. And so the new office buildings that you've created, the, the latest and greatest, yeah, they'll, they'll find tenants. That's not the problem. They have to find the right price point, but they'll find tenants. The uh, office buildings that will lose tenants are the older ones. And if if they're collateral for loan, you know, they're, they're going to go through foreclosure. The lender will end up with these older office buildings. Somebody buys them. They still have to get rid of those leftover tenants. You know, they all have long-term leases. So they have to get rid of those tenants. They have to wait till the leases expire or pay the tenants incentives to move out. This takes years. So when when you want to redevelop an office building into to residential, you're talking years. Yeah, there's a waiting period just just to get the tenants out and or and to go through bankruptcy and foreclosure and those kinds of procedures. And then you have to get the permits and you have to do all these things. So we're talking years. It's not something we can do today. So a developer would have to come in uh, and have a long-term plan for this. You know, we're looking at downtowns that are in trouble today. You know, redeveloping those properties will take years. So there's this this time gap there, or it's just not going to happen. <laughs> you know, it's just going to be tough. It's not going to happen. And um, during that time gap, you know, you have the supportive businesses get in trouble, and and uh, so you know, it's it's a very tough situation. Uh, for uh, for these cities, but yeah, if you're a developer and you have uh, backing from lenders and you know what you're doing, I think uh, there are some enormous opportunities there uh, to get involved in some of these re- redevelopment projects. So the process could certainly play out over time for builders and and remodelers yeah. and even design professionals. Um, very interesting. So. You, you touched on it earlier um, about work from home and, you know, the the reduced office tenancy rates. Um, what are you hearing anything out there in terms of um, 
you know, the whole work from home concept and, and whether employees like it, whether business owners like it, uh, what, what are you hearing out there? Well, everybody's got a different opinion. That's they what do. I'm hearing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, one thing is, is for sure that even smaller companies that never really did work from home, they let their people work from home more frequently, like mm-hmm. architectural firms and so forth. I mean, you have to have an office. You have materials at the office and you have different things. You know? So people have to go to the office. But one day or two days a week, you know, they might work from home and they can work more productively at home when they really just need to put their head down and get some stuff done. You know, And, and so um, that's on one end. On the other hand, we have companies, especially here in San Francisco, you know, they have abandoned office work. Essentially, they have uh, created meeting spaces for people to get together and uh, nobody's got a desk anymore. Nobody's got an office anymore. Uh, and it seems to work great. Some companies, some startups have never had an office. They've been working from home from the beginning. And uh, yeah, now that seems, seems justified. Uh, yeah, there's on Wall Street, there's a big push to get uh, you know, people back to the office. Uh, and, and people are very reluctant. I mean, the young people like to probably go into Goldman Sachs and, and uh, because it makes you feel really good. But, yeah, there's a lot of resistance to going, fighting, you know, the traffic and dealing with all the commuting issues. And so, um, you know, it, it's just a really mixed bag. And, and I think what we're seeing now developing is uh, a lot of flexibility or Companies are trying to save money on office space, and that's been happening. I mean, the cost cutters have started looking at that, and they're, they're seeing that. We, we no longer need all this vast amount of office space for future years, they're saying. You know, we, we don't really need that. We, we, can, we can maintain what we have without adding to it, or we can cut down a little bit and put some things on the market. And, you know, big companies like Google, they're still acquiring office space and for future use. And, uh, but they're also getting rid of some office space, so it's hard to tell. Um, it, it will take years to, to play out, but, uh, you know, employees like to have flexibility. That much is clear. And corporate cost cutters see the benefits of working from home if it can be done. Um, and this is just office workers. You know, you can't have a, a manufacturing plant like yours, Todd. It, it, it doesn't work. Sure, you know, you have to right. go to work. To, to, to do the job. And there's a lot of companies like that that are working from home. It's just by definition, not an option. So it, it's just a, a part of, of the, uh, of, of the commercial real estate that's being impacted by that. And, and, um, you know, I, I, I don't think it will go away. It, it's here. Uh, it's spreading. Uh, companies have learned to make it work. Uh, employees have learned to make it work. Uh, the disadvantages, the advantages, you know, so it's a, it's a mixed bag to some extent. Um, a lot of times it has been pointed out that young workers really need to be in a social environment to be, you know, to, to learn, to learn the ropes, so to speak. And, um, and that may be true. You know, if, if you have a, a kid coming out of college, starting a new job and working at home, yeah, that's, that's probably a lot more difficult uh, to do than, then going through two or three years in a corporate office and, and learning how to do things there where you can ask questions without problems. And, and so, you know, we, um, I, I think it's a reality, but it's, it's um, you know, we eventually see more people go back to the office, but work from home is not going to disappear. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's here to stay. Cat, cat's out of the bag and it's, yeah. it's going to, I, 
I see what you're saying. I know uh, my son graduated from college in 2020. Um, you know, his first job, uh, which he's still at, uh, you know, they were work from home for several months, uh, right? So, so he was working and had not met any of his coworkers in person for many, many months. Um, he is in the office now, but just two days a week, and he's at home the other three days and seems to yeah. love that that lifestyle and the way it works. So a lot of our products are used in residential remodeling, which, you know, in the wake of COVID, we saw absolutely boom in terms of the number of home improvement projects people were taking on, whether it was DIY or whether it was professionally installed. And one of the things that really I think has helped that has been interest rates because people were able to refinance or go out and get, you know, fairly economical short-term home improvement lending. Um, Kind of switching gears here a little bit, but, you know, what do you see happening out there in terms of interest rates, um, you know, going forward and what do you think will have to happen based upon your observations? Well, we have one of the most uh, amazing periods right now. So we have have had record low interest rates uh, because of central bank policies and which include a huge amount of asset purchases by not just the Fed, but by a bunch of other central banks around the world. And these asset purchases have pushed down long-term interest rates. And, uh, yeah, last year we had record low mortgage rates. So uh, they've come up since then, but it was just an incredibly cheap period to finance things. So now we've got inflation. (laughs) And, Depending on how you, uh, what measurement you look at, you know, CPI, the consumer price index, the, the headline index was up 6.2% year over year, uh, for October. The CPIW, which is for urban wage earners, yeah, that was up 6.9%. Um, yeah, it, it, uh, the I bonds, uh, which the government sells, that their, uh, their new interest rate came out and it's, it's over 7%. And, um, uh, so there is a significant inflationary pressures uh, building in the pipeline and already here on the shelves. And uh, when you look at wholesale inflation in Utah, you see that in your own uh, purchases. Uh, so this is this will be further up in the pipeline. You know, materials and supplies and all kinds of things are getting more expensive and by a lot more than just six percent in many cases. So. Um, uh, transportation costs are much more expensive. So all that has to get plowed into these prices and eventually it ends up being a consumer price item. And at the same time, we have these record low interest rates. So now the, the gap between uh, whatever inflation measure you want to look at and uh, the interest rates is at a historic widespread. And which means that real in, so-called real interest rates adjusted for inflation are at a are historically low. They're negative to the tune of, you know, minus, depending on what, what you're trying to find is that mortgage, maybe minus 4% and uh, minus 3%, minus 4% in, in real terms. And of course, that's a great opportunity to borrow, but will, will this go forward like this? And so uh, we had, we've had 
one of the most dovish Feds ever, and the Fed has refused to acknowledge the problem of inflation so far. But now they're starting to, they brushed it off with saying it's temporary, and it's it's not been temporary. It's just been getting worse and worse and worse. And we look at the uh, uh, inflation building up in the pipeline, and it's getting worse. So there's really not any indication that's going to be temporary. And um, so they're going to start dealing with that eventually. And dealing with inflation means that long-term interest rates have to go up. And uh, there's several ways the Fed will do that, uh, including uh, uh, first ending its asset purchases and then announce it will do that, and and then unloading its balance sheet which in, in bits and pieces, which will allow long-term interest rates to float higher. And um, so, you know, it's going to be more costly to borrow in the future than it is today. And uh, that is that's almost guaranteed. You know, I don't know how long this future lasts, will that be two or three years, or whether it'll be 10 years or 20 years, a long-term kind of thing. And uh, But uh, long-term interest rates have already come up some, you know, but they're still held down by the, by the Fed's asset purchases. Uh, those asset purchases are now scheduled to, to be finished, you know, at, at, the, at, at mid-2022 uh, next year. And uh, the Fed must speed the, the, this tapering process up. So long-term interest rates, uh, I think, are going to rise further from here and uh, next year. And, uh, you know, when you think about it, if, if mortgage rates uh, meet the rate of inflation, you would have 6%, 6.5% 30-year mortgage rates. And that would only make it even with inflation. Yeah, mm -hmm. mortgage rates are normally above inflation. And so in in, in the normal time period where you have 6% inflation, you have mortgage rates of 8 or 9%. Sure. And uh, so that's what we had in the 70s. And, and yeah, then we got inflation that went to the double digits and uh, mortgage rates went to the double digits. And, uh, yeah, that changes the calculus for everything. So people can't afford to spend $2 million on a house when rates are 5 or 6% uh, when they could still afford it at 2 or 3%. Yeah. So uh, the markets are going to react to these higher interest rates in some way. And, uh, you know, and it, it, yeah, so it will, it will bring down Asset, so mortgage rates rise substantially. You know, you, you'll see housing prices come down. You'll see uh, uh, certain types of commercial properties coming down. And um, uh, at the same time, when you know when you're uh, when you're doing remodeling jobs and those kinds of things, you're uh, you know you need to finance that. So you're looking at higher mortgage rates to finance it. You're looking at possibly uh, a lower sales price of the house. Um, so the, the, the calculus changes. The calculus has been incredibly positive over the last two years to do these things. You know, the mortgage rates have been extremely low. Now we have high inflation and low mortgage rates. I mean, these are some of the best conditions you can't imagine, except now we have shortages of everything. So it's, you really think now it's a great time to do the remodeling, but you can't get the stuff to do it. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's what uh, this kind of overstimulated economy actually does. You know, you have good conditions to invest in things and buy stuff, but it creates too much demand. And, and now we can't 
we can't supply that demand. And, and so you run out of stuff and you can't finish the projects because you can't get the appliances. So you can't put the windows in the building or, you know, you can't put the facing on the, on the tower. And, um, it, it causes these kinds of problems and, and, uh, you, you know, it makes you wonder, should I start with a project now? And, and, you know, you get it halfway done and then something comes up missing. You need to wait six months to get that and everything is on hold until you get it. And then you have labor problems. You can't hire the people you need to hire or you hire a contractor and they come for three days and then they get another project and they don't come back for another three months. Yeah. And, uh, so these are the kinds of, uh, issues uh, that we already have now, you know, and um, when we get higher mortgage rates, higher interest rates, I think it will take some of the pressure off. Some of those uh, projects get put on hold or uh, get canceled. And uh, yeah, that's what higher interest rates do. They will lower demand a little bit. And, and so maybe the system can balance out a little bit and you can actually hire people to do the jobs and you can actually get the, the materials uh, to do them. And uh, that would be a good thing in many ways. I mean, that's really what should be happening. Yeah, we, we're not in a normal economy right now. We're in a really messed up economy. And uh, yeah, it would be really good to normalize this and, and to take some demand off, uh, take some demand off from the transportation system, from 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 all, from the supply chains, from, from everything to, to let things settle down. Every, you know, when you can't get stuff, you become very inefficient. You have all kinds of people getting tied up trying to chase down all kinds of stuff and, and, and things on hold and things can't move forward and truck drivers are sitting waiting and uh, your containers are sitting and waiting and ships are at anchor not being able to unload. So you've got this whole gummed up economy that makes everything really hard to deal with and very inefficient. And so I think raising interest rates and, and to bring that demand down some, you know, that would allow the economy to function better. And that would be a good thing. And in terms of your own projects, you know, uh, funding will be harder, but uh, more expensive. Uh, but uh, maybe the process uh, will be a little bit easier to do and uh, you'll be easy, more likely to get your, your, your materials and, and maybe a little easier to hire contractors and those kinds of things. Yeah. What, what uh, switching gears tiny bit, what insight, I know you came out of the automotive industry and spent a number of years there. Um, what insight do you have on that right now? I mean, we hear what a mess it is, and you know we have lots of contractors out there in the construction industry paying eighty, ninety grand for work trucks, trucks, which just completely boggles my mind. Um, but yet they're doing it. Um, I mean, what? How do you? when do you think this all rectifies itself? And of course, part of it goes back to the, the chip shortage as well. Yeah. And these vehicles sitting out there that by the time they have chips are going to be last year's vehicles. <laughs> yeah, this is a, this is a gigantic mess. And uh, so the first thing, as you said, Todd, uh, that needs to happen is the chips need to start flowing again. And, and we're seeing some improvement, but it takes a long time. So when the chip manufacturer sends the, the chip, uh, out the door, it goes to a component maker and they'll make a little gadget out of it. And that little thing goes into a larger component. And then, and so that's done in Asia somewhere. And sometimes it goes component made in Asia. Then there's other sub assemblies made in Germany. And then uh, it finally gets shipped to the United States for, or to Mexico for assembly into a vehicle. And so even if chip supply catches up, it will take months before the components arrive 
at the assembly plant to be assembled into vehicles. And uh, so we've already passed the point where a relaxation of the problem today would mean an improvement this year. You know, it's too late for that, but we're going to see some improvement on the, at the manufacturing level, so at the assembly plant level next year. Uh, yeah, it, I don't think it will be, from what I hear, you know, I don't think it will be fully resolved in 2022, uh, but I, it's going to get better. Uh, it's already getting a little bit better. Um, and uh, so we'll see some improvement. Now, in terms of uh, the truck and van situation, um, in terms of the construction industry and plumbers and electricians and so forth, you know, if you need a van or pickup truck now, this is the worst possible time to, to need one, you know, because sure. you can't get them. And if you get one, you know, you have to pay a new one. You have to pay $20,000 over a stick or whatever to get one. And the, the work vehicle, so the, the low margin bare uh, vans, for example, that, that a lot of uh, commercial users buy, um, yeah, they're low margin vehicles for automakers and they're being deprioritized. So automakers are making the high end vehicles, the high end models. That's where the $80,000 pickup truck comes from. It's not your work truck. You know, it's a fully decked out everything on a pickup truck because they can't make enough trucks uh, to fill all the orders. You know, their volume is way down. A new vehicle sales are way down. I mean, that's just plunged, you know, because there's not enough vehicles to sell. Um, so they're making the most expensive vehicles, most expensive models, most decked out models with the biggest uh, uh, packages on them. And so their revenues are actually looking pretty good. You know? and, and the dealers are making record profits because they're charging over sticker for a lot of this stuff. And uh, so you have the auto industry sales volume way down in terms of unit sales, but you have the gross profits per unit up at, at extraordinarily high levels. You know? I mean, it's it's... It's it's an it's just an enormous amount of money that's being made on these vehicles. Uh, so the the other side of that story is that you really can't get a cheap work truck, and you really can't get a bare work van. And and so now that has shifted to the used vehicle market, where uh, prices of uh, vans have jumped by fifty fifty percent, five zero percent. Uh, year over year because there's so much demand for these things and it doesn't matter how many miles you have on it you know, it's gonna, it's somebody's going to pay over any normal amount you know just to, to grab that and, and people have bought ambulance and torn out all this stuff inside you know and and uh, it's uh, and there's a very strong demand for delivery vans for for the commerce business and for the construction business and for the for the contractors and the same with pickup trucks. Uh, just commercial vehicle, commercial type vehicles, and they're, they're not being met. So, um, uh, you know, if, if at all possible, you know, it's probably a good idea not to buy, not to try to buy something under these conditions. Uh, that said, you know, who knows what's going to happen next year, you know, and, and uh, if the chip shortage gets, gets resolved very quickly, we're going to have more supply, but there's going to be lots of pent-up demand for these commercial vehicles next year, too, because I, I wouldn't be the only one that's delaying the purchase. You know? sure. There'll be lots of other people out there doing that. And uh, so you have that demand for these commercial vehicles being dragged into next year. And um, and I don't know how sticky these price increases are. You know, It's incomprehensible to me, having been in the car business for so long, that consumers 
uh, would pay $10,000 over a sticker that they would, uh, instead of negotiating and haggling, you know, car buying was all about negotiating discounts and haggling and incentives and rebates. And, and now it's whoever pays the most over a sticker gets it. And, and uh, commercial buyers used to be very sophisticated in the pricing models. Um, so they, they uh, go to different dealers or they deal directly with the large fleet that they deal directly with the automakers. And, you know, they try to work the cheapest deal. And now it's just, I need something. Give me something, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> and it's, you know, this, this is one of those real problems in the economy where there's, uh, uh, you know, we have, we have fundamental issues in this economy uh, right now because of this, this imbalance situation. And um, I don't know how long that will, uh, will, will, uh, will take to work out, but if you can't get these vehicles, you know, it's hard to do your job. Yeah. You know, these are, these are commercial vehicles. So th- this is, this is a drag, you know, and, yeah. and, you know, we have an interesting situation going on right now uh, in that there's a particular chemical used in the batteries for electrical electric vehicles that is also used in the coatings uh, that are used on high-performance uh, metal building materials. And so we're almost being squeezed out of our access to that chemical because the EV folks are willing to pay so much more for it. Um, this seems like really you know, everything coming together is really creating an opportune time, though, for more and more money being plunged into electric vehicle development and um, folks being willing to pay the extra money because everything has gotten expensive. Is yeah. uh, Do you have any viewpoints on the on the EV market or? Yeah. So uh, the, the thing people need to know about EVs that makes them uh, completely different from internal combustion engine vehicles is that the electric motor uh, can be used as a brake, and when it's being used as a brake, it charges the battery. Mm-hmm. And it, it's symmetrical, so electric motor becomes a generator. And uh, uh, so in stop and go traffic, uh, the electric motor does most of the braking. And if you have, uh, like the Ford pickup truck, the EV truck that's coming out, it's supposed to have 600 horsepower equivalent in electric motors, and uh, th- that's equivalent of 600 braking horsepower. So this provides a lot of, of braking and it can charge up the battery in that process. So what this means is that in stop and go traffic, EVs are incredibly efficient. They don't, they don't idle, so you don't waste any gasoline. You don't start them up. You don't have uh, the, the, the waste of gasoline that when you start up a vehicle, you know, um, Every time you slow down the vehicle, the batteries get charged up a little bit. And um, so, yeah, an EV for urban delivery is like the biggest no-brainer, no-brainer in the history of mankind. You know, you, um, there is no more efficient way to deliver than with an EV with regenerative braking, as that's called. And um, uh, so the costs have come way down. EVs are actually cheaper to build. They're less complex to build than, than internal combustion engine vehicles. Uh, the, the batteries is a, is a challenge, but an urban delivery vehicle doesn't need to go 300 miles. You know, it right. goes 70 miles. You know? And then, then it goes back to the depot and you can charge it up. And, and uh, so it doesn't need to use the public par- uh, charging infrastructure. Um, and 
this is a huge movement, you know, and Ford has dominated the, uh, the commercial van segment. Uh, it has dropped the ball on EV vans. It's coming up with a, a EV version of its of its regular van, and that's just kind of an afterthought. Whereas the other manufacturers are coming out with their own uh, EVs uh, built from a blank sheet of paper, and uh, these are incredibly practical vehicles. So uh, whether or not they cost more to begin with, I'm, I'm not sure. You know, we'll have to look at it. But the batteries don't have to be huge. So the biggest cost of an EV, the battery, you know, is not going to be a big problem. You only have to go 70, 80, or 100 miles, or maybe 150 miles, you know. But uh, you don't need to go 300. And, um, and they're otherwise uh, cheaper to build. The electric motors are very small, so you, you're very free to, to build on top of that chassis. And... Um, and we're seeing those coming on the market. So again, this is all held back by the semiconductor shortage. And, and so they're not really building uh, enough of them or building any of them really right now. Uh, but uh, in terms of operating costs, I think this will, uh, will dramatically change the equation for urban delivery vehicles and for, for uh, uh, contractors running around in, in, uh, in urban areas. Uh, yeah, EVs have the advantage of big batteries, so you can plug in your electrical equipment without any problem. Um, yeah, there, uh, there, there's all kinds of advantages for having those uh, uh, around in, in urban environments. Yeah, on the other extreme are uh, the trucks that haul trailers across the country. I think that will probably be the last application of electric motors uh, because the the power requirements are such that you would need a, a huge battery to yeah. do that, to go, you know, 600 miles straight through pulling, uh, uh, you know, a trailer like that at 70 miles an hour. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think, you know, I don't think that's realistic right now, but there is a big part of it that's very realistic in it and, uh, and changes for the better, the, the cost equation for people that have to use these vehicles for on a commercial basis. Yeah, that's very interesting. And, and uh, hadn't really thought about that as far as those more local use vehicles and how that's going to impact that. This is very interesting. So overall, as you look at our economy and the situation that we're in, uh, any ideas at all as far as where, where we might hit a port where we feel like, gee whiz, things have kind of reached a, a level of normalcy again? Or do you think, are we set off on a cycle now that is going to just be constant change and, and disruption? And Well, some disruption is good. Sure. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of good things that came out of the pandemic. And, uh, uh, you know, including uh, learning how to manage work from home. You know, I mean, that's they've really figured out how to do that. And uh, there's lots of other things, you know, that uh, that will have a positive impact that we'll learn how to do. Um, but we're, you know, we're facing a, a, an environment we haven't seen in really 30 or 40 years, and that's a high inflationary environment. And uh, we're facing a globally overstimulated economy through money printing and and interest rate repression and and other measures and uh, so it really needs to be backed off pretty dramatically. At the same time, uh, that will lower demand. And, and that's the purpose of it. You, know, you want to lower demand to where, 
or you can handle it, you know, or mm-hmm. you can have a normal economy dealing with that demand. And um, uh, there, there will be nonlinear events. You know, this is not, not going to be predictable. Like uh, uh, month after month, economists have underestimated the growth of inflation this year. And uh, I mean, that's one of those things that um, they just couldn't grasp that, yeah, they looked at Japan and said, yeah, they did all this money printing and they repressed interest rates this year and they didn't get any inflation. And we did the same thing after the financial crisis. And we didn't get a lot of inflation. And so we're not going to get a lot of inflation. And then everything's changed. Now we've got a lot of inflation. It's going all the way up the pipeline. It's everywhere. Wages are going up. You have trouble hiring people and it's this labor shortage. You can't get vehicles and all this stuff. Yeah. And uh, it was totally unexpected, and yet it's happening month after month after month, you know, and, and the, it's relentless. And, uh, you know, we, we're going to see these kinds of things that are totally unexpected, and they're going to happen, and they're going to happen month after month after month, and they're relentless. And, uh, you know, it, I think we're in a very uncertain, uh, much more uncertain than normal time because some of the, the uh assumptions we've had have been thrown out the window. They no longer work. You know, right. so they're gone, you know, and now we're back to square one and we have to figure out where, where we go. And uh, so I think inflation will be with us. I think high interest rates will be with us. Um, uh, you know, that will change a lot. I think those are the two big, big economic factors we're going to look at going forward, high inflation, high interest rates. And, uh, you know, I don't, there's a lot of talk about stagflation. I don't see that. You need to have stagnation and inflation. I see the inflation. I don't see the stagnation part. So uh, uh, maybe we'll get that someday, uh, but I don't see that. You know, I, I see lots of demand, lots of inflation, higher interest rates. And, um, uh, you know, and I see lots of inefficiencies and lots of confusion and lots of risks and and uh, lots of befuddled economists <laughs> and uh, uh, business people trying to figure out how to how to find your way through that. You know, and I talked to a car dealer friend of mine just the other day, and and you know, and that, that's that's the world we're living. You know, we got to make a living dealing with the situation we have and. And that's for me, and it's for you, Todd, and it's for everybody else. The same thing, you know. We got to figure out how to to get through this period somehow and uh, make our businesses thrive. And um, and there'll be lots of opportunities. But I, I think to keep in mind is high inflation, high interest rates, and and possibly uh, lower demand, uh, but not necessarily on the on the stagnation level, you know. But just not red hot demand, just right. normal demand, maybe. Well, and, and like you said, out of the midst of that, too, there's going to be opportunities. And, you know, it's going to be a lot of the, the smart folks and the disruptors who are going to figure out um, some really positive things out of all of that. So interesting stuff. So pretty much at the end of our time, I thank you very much. It's been great. Um, real pleasure to, to talk and have this time together. As you can see, um, I lost my co-host. Uh, he got a, a phone call and uh, had to leave unexpectedly. So uh, not sure exactly what's up with that, but uh, uh, certainly wish wish him the best. Anyway, um, is there anything that we haven't covered today that uh, you would like to share with our listeners? Yeah, I, I think we pretty much covered the big <laughs> issues in, in the economy. You know, uh, 
it's a it's a very profitable time to be in business. I mean, that's for sure for for many businesses, and uh, uh, and, and that's good to see, you know. And, and at the same time, we've got you know hair raising problems, and right, yeah, I see. And it, it, it's tough, yeah. You know? I know what you're saying. So before we close out, um, I want to ask you if you'd like to participate in something we do at the end of most episodes called rapid fire questions. Uh, these are seven questions. They range from serious, maybe silly, um, just looking for your quick response. And our audience needs to understand if Wolf agrees to do this, um, he has no idea what I'm about to ask him. So um, Wolf Richter, are you up to the challenge of rapid fire? I am. Well, away we go then. Okay. Um, easy ones. Morning person or evening person? Morning person, definitely. Most definitely. Always been. Very good. Me too. Uh, the living person who you admire the most? Well, one of them just died. <laughs> oh. um, well, that it can be that person then. Yeah. I'm going to honor him with that. It's, uh, do I need to name him? Not if you're not comfortable, whatever you like to do, that's fine. Well, that's the a guy whose family I used to live with when I was a kid, and I okay. stayed in contact with for a long time, and, and awesome. worked for for a decade. Awesome, it's amazing the influence that folks like that can have on our lives, and yeah. uh, well, I, my condolences for for your loss there as well. Um, where is your happy place? Where do you like to go to decompress? My geographic happy place is that what you're asking? That'd be fine, sure. <laughs> I'm at it. I'm in it. Are you? San Francisco. Oh, awesome. <laughs> and and particularly when I'm swimming in the bay, in the San Francisco Bay, then amongst the sea lions and the seals and the cormorants and the pelicans, you know, then I'm cut off from the world and I'm happy. Wow. That's an amazing picture. Um, if there was a movie made about your life, who would you like to have play you? Well... William Defoe, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I can see the resemblance there. <laughs> Good deal. Any hobbies as a child? As a child? Well, I like to play with my electric train set. <laughs> Did you really? Awesome. Good stuff. Okay. Um, and then I will have a confession after this. Uh, lowest grade you ever received in a class? Well, as low as you can go, I've had Fs. <laughs> Not many, had some. Well, well, I have to say my my confession is my, my lowest grade that I had on a report card, maybe probably not a test or something, uh, was in gym class. So uh, that gives you some idea of my physical prowess. Um, I'm not going to be swimming in the bay with the sea lions and, and all that stuff. Uh, what is your dream vacation? Okay, so you're asking a guy who spent three years traveling around so the you've world. You've been all over, yeah. That's a, <laughs> and I didn't know that when I put that question together. Yeah, um, you know that changed my attitude about vacations because you know I really love not taking vacations now, and and because I've had this huge vacation. Um, but my dream vacation. So, um, what would that be? I mean, it would have to be some gorgeous mountain range hiking for five days or something like that. Oh, mountain person. Cool. Very good. Well, this has been great. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure to, to visit and to learn from you. And uh, we'll definitely want to do this again sometime. Um, of course, uh, as I mentioned earlier, your your website is wolfstreet.com. Um 
tell us, you know, why might someone want to connect with you um, other than to learn from you and visit your website? And if they wanted to connect, how would they go about doing that? Yeah, so wolfstreet.com has a contact page and, and uh, with an email so they can reach me that way. And uh, uh, otherwise, yeah, wolfstreet.com is, is pretty much all I do anymore these days. And, and I have to say, you are incredibly responsive. I know when I first reached out to you, I thought, oh, this guy's too busy. He's not going to connect <laughs> with me. And uh, I heard from you very quickly. So thank you for that. Um, well, this has been great again. Thanks so much. We enjoyed the time. I know our listeners and, and viewers will enjoy it uh, as well. So thank you to our listeners and viewers for tuning in to this episode of Construction Disruption uh, with our special guest, Wolf Richter of WolfStreet.com. I invite you to watch out for future episodes of our podcast. We've got lots of great guests on tap in future episodes. Um, don't forget to leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or YouTube. Um, until then, as we always encourage everybody, change the world for somebody. Make them smile. Bring them encouragement. Bring them hope. Um, just incredibly powerful things that we can do to change the world uh, one interaction at a time. God bless. Take care. Uh, this is Isaiah Industries signing off until the next episode of Construction Disruption.